Episode number 27 of the Media Narrative Podcast. I'm Rob Hoschild. I love being a sideman and I love just playing whatever is the right thing for the song at any given time. Duke Levine is one of the finest guitar players anywhere, and I felt very fortunate to spend an hour in his basement studio outside of Boston last week. For decades, he has accompanied some of the biggest names in music, but he's incredibly humble about it all, as you'll see. In this episode, he talks about balancing work as a band leader and a side musician, and he also plays his 1953 Fender Telecaster several times to help illustrate some of the ideas that come up in our conversation. We'll hear a little bit of one of his original compositions, Lava, as we begin. Well, Duke Levine, I've seen you play so many times since the 90s, uh, and in fact, just hung with you and Kevin Barry over at WUMB, where I started working recently, got Mm -hmm. to hear you guys play and talk about the music. So thank you for all the music over the years, and thank you for some time today. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me, and thanks for listening since the 90s. I didn't know that. That's right. Uh, Going way back, Dennis Brennan days, I think. Oh, yeah. When did you start playing with Dennis Brennan? With Dennis, I think it was around 92, maybe, right. something like that, yeah. maybe even 91. Yes. Dennis Brennan, one of the great musicians in Boston, a great yeah. band, and anyone who comes to town really has to check him out. Um, so you've toured with major artists like Peter Wolf and his band, Jay mm-hmm. Giles, Mary Chapin Carpenter, Amy Mann, Otis Rush, Roseanne Cash. You've played on recording sessions with singer-songwriters like Laurie McKenna, Martin Sexton, uh, Susan Werner, Bill Morrissey. And then here in town, uh, although I, I'm sh- I know you've played with these bands outside of town too, mm-hmm. Dennis, uh, Brennan, we just talked about, Session Americana, mm-hmm. Club Delft, Jimmy Ryan. Um, so a lot of great work as a side musician and um, for years, going way, way back in... 1994, I believe you released your first solo album, somewhere around there, 94, 95. I think it was actually around, yeah, that could, I think 92 maybe was the first one. So it's blurry, but I think 94, uh, Country Soul Guitar came out, I think. Okay. That was 94. Yeah. We can, we can fact check this later on. Um, So you started releasing solo records, but it, in these last few years, you've started to, from my perspective, do more and more of leading your own projects. You've got the Duke Levine band mm-hmm. and the giant Kings, which is a great soul band right. yeah. and, uh, and a new group that we're going to talk about focusing on the seventies music. So w- what I'm wondering about is how much all of that side musician work has contributed to the way that you lead a band and put together the work of a band and run mm-hmm. a band, you know, having been on sort of the other side for most of your career. Yeah. Oh, that's a good question because um, I think it didn't even dawn on me for a while. And I I had my own band over the years. I did, you know, it was usually my own band was the side project because I played with, you know, mostly my full-time gig was playing with other people. So I've kind of, yeah, released my own records over the years, never really played with my own band full-time, but uh, it really dawned on me, like, I don't know, some years after I started doing it that I think everyone that's a side man should lead their own band. 
because it really is invaluable to like get that perspective of you being up there in front and and what what that all the stuff that goes along with it that's some you know you know and i've been lucky enough to work with great artists that i've always i really have always got along with musically and other and personally and uh but it's like um you know there's times when um you just you get that perspective when you're in front of a band that you might not know if you're just backing somebody up so for example can you give any examples of of things you picked up from being in that leader position that helped you understand the role that you play yeah, in a one, lot of the cases one thing was i used to always wonder you know there's some of the people i've played with like, like some of the my favorite songs they wouldn't want to do huh. and uh and i always wonder it's like wow it's such a great song i wonder why they won't do that and and uh, when I found myself in the same position where it's like, you know, people want, it's like, why don't you do that, ever do that song from this record? And it's like, I don't know if I can tell you why even, but I just don't, it doesn't feel like I, I want to play that song. Right. So I, that was really interesting, you know, and especially, and that's just for instrumental, I, I do instrumental music on my own. But uh, if, and I can imagine if you're a writer and, and you're singing something that maybe meant something more to you once in your life that doesn't anymore, that you mm-hmm. might not want to revisit that. Yeah, and uh, that was kind of interesting. That phenomenon. All music lists you as having seven hundred and eighteen credits right now. Wow, does that sound right to you? I don't know, like <laughs> that many records. Well, I don't know about that, but uh, it, I, I didn't count to see where they got that number from. But <laughs> yeah. but that's the number at the top of the page, seven hundred eighteen. Wow, yeah, I don't know where that comes from, but uh, so you must have acquired a lot of information about what it takes for a side musician to do well what a side musician does like what are the characteristics mm-hmm. that make you good at this but and of course mm-hmm. you're an amazing guitar player you know i well, mean thank you just ridiculous and and I, I say this to everyone i ever talked to and i might as well just say it now i think you're one of the best guitar players i've ever heard and you're right here in boston so for those of us who live here and get to hear you so much it's a blessing well, thank you um and everyone should check you out but so i know that 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 is a big part of it but what else uh is important yeah i, I think everyone that does that will tell you that you have to really truly get along with people and and be easy to be around yeah especially when you're a people know what it's like to have roommates in an apartment or a house it's like when your roommates on a bus it's a yeah. it's a whole different thing and uh and yeah it's basically that's such a huge part of the job is being being easy to be around um and then musically um i kind of take it for granted because I, I love doing i love being a side man and i love just playing whatever is the right thing for the song at any given time and and i realize that i don't think everybody I don't think everybody wants to do that. And, uh, and I think some people find themselves in that position and get frustrated because mm-hmm. it's not a showcase for, right. for their playing necessarily. It might be, or it might not be, you know, it could go either way every time. So did you have to go through some sort of transition in your thinking and what your goals were as a musician to arrive at that place? Or was it always just, I don't think so. That's a, you know, interesting, but I think I always played in, in people's bands. So yeah. I think it was natural to uh i guess i always kind of thought that way i enjoyed playing in ensembles and i and i like being part of a whole thing so going back to that all music uh list again for a second um 
One thing I noticed on there really surprised me. There was a record that came out in 1993 that I listened to a lot. I think on cassette, maybe vinyl <laughs> or both, that I played when I had a show on MBR. Uh-huh. Uh, Bob Moses' Time Stood Still. Oh, yeah. Which is this really cool fusion of like world beat and funk and jazz. And there's is that- Monk in there. Oh, yeah. And I, I've played you know, on a couple of his records. And, um, and I'm trying to remember what was on that particular record. But... Uh- I loved playing with Bob. I was in his band for about four years. Yeah, right. Well, Mozamba, it was called. Yeah. And that was uh, during or after you were at New England Conservatory, right? It was, yeah, I met him because I studied with him at New England Conservatory. That's how I met him. Yeah. uh, I think my last semester. And, uh, you know, I joined his band shortly thereafter. And, uh, yeah, like I say, we got to to play with him for about four years, I think. And it was great. I love him. And he's an amazing musician and writer and artist in every way. And I learned a lot from him. And uh, yeah, he's, uh, I still see him once in a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's yeah. still, uh, and still teaches at NEC. He's still, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a great album, Time Stood Still. Uh, uh, and I wanted to mention that to everybody. Uh, and, and Bob Moses, not to be confused with some new group called Bob Moses. There's a new group Moses. called Bob Moses, right. Have you yeah. heard them at all? You I have not. <laughs> and I, I just know that they exist. Yeah. yeah. It was yeah. maybe it's confusing. a duo was... or something. It's uh, yeah, yeah. I, like an, a, I guess an electronica duo or yeah, something. Yeah, when I, like I think that. I saw the name come up on Facebook, it's yeah. like, wow, Bob Moses, I don't think is on Facebook. But. He's really changed his sound. <laughs> yeah, <he's> a, <laughs> um, so then, one yeah, other. Oh, that's cool. I want to um, check in with you about this most, uh, the recording you're working on right now mm-hmm. um, with a group of musicians here in Boston doing music from the 70s. And uh, I've heard you do this thing live several times, and mm-hmm. it's, it's really extraordinary um oh, hearing hearing music that you've never heard performed live in an, like in an intimate setting like a small club i hadn't heard of that i hadn't thought of that aspect of it yeah i yeah, mean that- well and actually one of the tunes that's not in the 70s uh set list for you guys is flying by the beatles mm-hmm. which i mean i don't think anyone ever heard anyone play that live yeah. and and i forget where it was whether it was a show at Pasim in cambridge or yeah. someplace else when you did a, a solo show and yeah you play that tune i had no idea you played that tune it, oh, it yeah. pretty much made my eyes oh, no tear up because i'm a huge beatles fan and the first time i heard that i just kind of lost it i was like holy <laughs> crap flying he's playing well, that that's, tune. that's on uh the record my record uh beneath the blue right it's on that one and uh Funny thing was that it was the only song that they all four of them got credit on. That's right. There's no lyrics. There's no nothing. No, they all four, no. Must have just been a jam in the studio, I guess. I guess so. And it's a perfect Duke Levine song. Um, and, you know, speaking of that record, uh, so that was Beneath the Blue. Yeah. You have five solo records out, and mm-hmm. uh, most of those are your original compositions. It's Yeah, a lot of them are kind of half and half. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and try to find covers that, you know, a little maybe off the beaten path. What's different from what I can tell, or one thing that's different about this new record is it's probably all covers, right? These 70s things? The tunes? 70s thing, yeah. Yeah, it's all, basically the concept takes some music that, that had some kind of, uh, you know, that resonate with me in some way for whatever reason. And uh, and hopefully, you know, some, some are kind of just covers of instrumental, existing instrumental tunes from the 70s, but mostly the goal was to kind of take, uh, make, make arrangements of, of tunes that were, you know, vocal tunes or whatever and uh try to make something new out of it as well and and not just you know we use i guess we use some a lot of elements of the sounds of the 70s some of the actual sounds that we like to go back to and maybe guitar through a phase shifter or the moog um 
but uh, some of it is just the element of this is this song and let's make a new arrangement out of it and everyone's free to play however they play now and yeah. without necessarily having to recreate like this guitar sound like I play country guitar over some of this stuff because yeah. that's basically what I love to play right. and uh, and we have lap Kevin playing lap steel on a lot of stuff yeah so you know whatever we can you know in a way repurpose like to that's kind of the art of it I think for me and and the fun of it. So we're going to listen to a track from this in a, in a second, but would you name some of the songs or artists that, you, that you've been playing live? Yeah, we, we do an arrangement of uh, At 17, which is a great Janice Ian song. Right. And uh, that's one of my favorites. And uh, we do... Sounds very different from the original. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like as if, if, if it was on the Jeff Becker record, Blow by Blow, <laughs> yeah. then it might sound like that. Um, which you also do in the show you've done we that. do a rec we do a tune from that yeah, yeah. just because blow by blow again it's like stuff that kind of has a that hit that ha I have memories of in a, being in a certain place in time yeah and, and a lot of this stuff is the early part of the decade for me for some reason you know mm -hmm. it pre uh, before before most people started spending like a year making a record which is great too I, I love the later part of the decade stuff get a, yeah. got a little slicker and a little and and like that but this the, there was a particularly kind of weird time in the early 70s i think anything anything went you know so um janice and jeff Beck. um yeah we do uh some argent and oh, right. uh we do a little bit of uh, uh what else is in there um I just had the list with There's me. that medley with uh, some Yes and yeah. Bowie in it. Yeah, right? there's a couple Yes things make appearances and um part of the part of my MO is that it doesn't have to be the whole song. We can right. it's like kind of a lucid dream of the 70s. So like <laughs> maybe the last the last section of Starship Trooper makes an appearance just right. cuz, you know, and I yeah. just something I remember. Um yeah, the the thing with a couple Pink Floyd tunes mm -hmm. and uh the Bowie tune in between uh our percussionist Yahuba calls that the cosmic trifecta oh yeah <laughs> so and it's got some transitions that that are kind of modern like there's some drum and bass kind of grooves that are kind of weaving in and out of it and mm. just basically yeah we're bringing uh dignity to our decade <laughs> <laughs> i love it <laughs> so, yeah. sometimes this it, it, the, you know all decades encompass a lot of different stuff and sometimes you know that people hear a 70s thing and I think that every a lot of people have their own idea of what that might be. You know, it mm. could be a goofy thing, certainly, yeah. and it could be a kitschy thing. It could be a disco thing. It could be yacht rock. It could <laughs> yeah. be so many things. Yeah. But you know, our particular thing is is kind of you know trying to really have something that's like a basically a, uh, um, a night of music, right? And it um, that that we can that can kind of evolve like like as if they were original tunes as you play them. Um, there's a life to them, and, yeah. it, and it's not just not just picking what uh, what next song can we do. It's it's got to have some kind of connection, Shit, like create a sort of narrative, a story in the sequence of tunes throughout. Yeah, the yeah, yeah, and and just and have something that's meaningful and not just like okay, here we're just gonna rip through a bunch of covers, right? And, which right. is nothing wrong with that either. Yeah, you know, it's perfectly fun to do. Um, but you know, hopefully. If I'm taking it seriously yeah. enough, everybody else, maybe maybe other people will appreciate it. Uh, well, people are definitely appreciating well, it fun, or yeah. over appreciating it. And you it's know? amazing band too, <laughs> and, and and knowing knowing the characters that I'm playing with, I, I also can know what what's possible in the arrangements. Say the names of uh, yeah. the people in the band. Well, Kevin Barry, who's we've who's someone we you know we've played together for 25 years and still a lot together, and it's a really great. Uh, 
great friendship and playing relationship. And uh, yeah, you guys uh, are. It's one of the most amazing musical partnerships I think I've ever witnessed. Like, <laughs> I've seen you play so many times with different artists. It's almost like you're a package deal in a lot <laughs> of cases. It's pretty fun. I know. It's it's yeah. It's amazing. We get to play as much together as yeah, we do. The interplay really, is really extraordinary. He's, so, a, okay. he's amazing. He's an amazing musician. Really, and is. and as well as Mike Rivard, who I've also kind of go back as far. Um, amazing bass player and band leader in its own right and composer. Um, Club Delph is the name Club of Club Delph, of fans, yeah. yeah. And a couple of the guys that, that I met through playing with Club Delph, who was uh, the drummer Dean Johnston and Paul Schulteis, who's a great mm-hmm. keyboard player. And then uh, Yehuba Torres is playing Kungas, and yeah. he's uh, someone we've all met more recently, but equally as great. So let's listen to a little bit of a tune right now. If you could just say a little bit about it. It's called Whispering Pines from the band. So um, what made you want to go after this tune, and what did you guys sort of do with it in the studio? Um, this one, um, I was you know, a huge fan, as, as most, a lot of people are, of the band. And uh, I always loved that song. I thought that might be a good one to try in some way and uh, to, to make something out of it. And it took me a little while. I, I tried different approaches to playing the melody with different kinds of sounds i didn't want to just have it be just just playing the kind of a literal version of it um and ultimately i I dug out this thing that i've had for like 20 years it's it's a guitar synthesizer Hmm. it's uh from i guess maybe the early 80s it's an analog guitar synth that you just plug into and uh and i i i kind of tried the melody with that and i really liked it and uh for somehow in the middle of the tune, a lot of times I'll make little demos of these tunes um, to see if I want to do them at all. And in the middle of the tune, listening back when I played it with the guitar synth, all of a sudden it sounded like a Stevie Wonder tune from Music of My Mind. And oh. it's like, oh, that, that to me was getting somewhere. You know, that's like, it, it seemed like this is taking the song in a different place, but still has the emotion of it, I hope. All right, so let's listen to a little bit of that. This is Whispering Pines. And what's the name of the band or the record this is going to be on? Um, well, this is called Duke Levine and the Super Sweet Sounds of the 70s. Right. So um, in, I guess this might be like an EP or something. It's mm-hmm. a little bit in progress, but a little sampler of what we do. So that was Whispering Pines, and uh, actually there's a video version of this up on YouTube, right, Duke? There is, yeah, from us uh, playing in the studio, and it's the it's the take that we used, and anybody can go check that out. Cool. So we'll include a link to that in the show notes, and since we just listened to something from the 70s, let's go back to the 70s in terms of your life for a moment. Right. I actually listened to an interview that you did recently on a podcast called Everyone Knows Guitar. I'll include a link to that, too. And uh, there, there. One thing I learned from listening to that is that you played in a band in junior high and high school, mm-hmm. and even had a manager who got you guys a bus, mm-hmm. which is some pretty advanced stuff for like a young band like that. Yeah. What did that band do? What was it called? How did it come about? Yeah, that was. Uh, it was pretty amazing. It was called Landslide, and uh, Fleetwood Mac covers. No, no. We, that was. I don't know. That might have even been before that song. I'm trying okay. to remember. I don't think we named it because of that song. Mm-hmm. Um, so this would, I joined, they were, 
these there were three guys that were already a trio and they were called cloudy heaven that was the original name <laughs> and one. uh and i was 12 and these guys were 12 and 13 and uh the singer this guy reggie jeffries uh was he made a big splash in junior high where my sister heard him because my sister's a couple of years older because he sang rock and robin uh-huh. and he sounded just like michael jackson <laughs> um and he did a, I believe he did a Chuck Berry song that that the teachers were were uh, he caused a little bit of a scandal. It was a little 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 racy um, for <laughs> this them. Nineteen seventy three. This is not yeah right? exactly. Yeah. Um, but so those guys were a trio. I joined, and uh, we got a couple other players along the way, and stayed together all through junior high and high school for me. And by yeah, by the last couple of years, our keyboard player his his brother became our manager he was a little older and bought a school bus and we had uh all our friends were our road crew and we had our own pa and lights mm-hmm. and uh, we even played some bars that's incredible back then. yeah it was pretty and it, I, I always say it i think i learned so much without realizing i was learning yeah. anything about doing all that stuff and so you were you were actually how old you were 12 when this band 12 started? when it's the when i joined yeah and, and you were the youngest musician in the band yeah i think you know one of the guys that started the band moved shortly there i think he's my, he's the same age so he was 12 um guy named mike mcavoy who okay. he moved his this is a good um this is timely his dad who was a professor at clark university in worcester moved the family to the uk like about probably about a year after we started playing and uh, because he didn't want the kids to grow up in the nixon administration Oh wow! <laughs> I <laughs> wonder where he would now. Yeah, where <laughs> would he move his kids now? Siberia. He, he's still around, and yeah. um, so and Mike went on to play with Traffic and Stevie Winwood for a long time, and and we all just had a reunion last year of the band, which we hadn't since high school. Wow, and what was, was that like? It was pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, we did it. We we all got together here. I'm, I'm the only one that lives around Boston or Worcester right. anymore. And uh, we had a little party at the Lizard Lounge. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it was I, really fun. I, I, everybody I, still plays, and everybody got better, and you know. That's amazing. Uh, so this is Worcester, Mass. You're talking about yeah. about an hour west of Boston for anyone who, who doesn't know. So how did your, you know, to, to what degree had your sound at that age, 12, 13, 14, 15, developed with respect to what <laughs> we hear now? Um, well, one of my influences early on, my, my brother Rick had a full-time country rock band when I was, you know, like nine or 10, I guess. And they rehearsed in our house and they were re- oh, wow. in earnest. So they would rehearse every day and they were original music. And, uh, and so I was, you know, my brother, I learned, all my brothers I learned a lot from. They were into kind of finger picking, acoustic guitar stuff. Um, and the guy that played with my brother is this guy named Walter Crockett, who's from Worcester. And, uh, not from Worcester, but was was a big presence in Worcester, and and I got to hear him play lead guitar every day. So mm. I, he was a big influence in the way I played it early on, and uh, then I went on to play in his band when I graduated high school. After Landslide, he started a band with his wife Valerie, and uh, and I played with with he and Val for four years. So after high school, you didn't go right to New England Conservatory. No. You went out on the road and played out with yeah. This and band. that was at a time you know in New England, if you were just in New England, you could play every night. Yeah. And we did a you know a lot of a lot of Walter's original music and some covers, but you could play almost any town. There was like yeah. every every town had a couple places with live music, so we were working six seven nights a week. So, also also had a bus at one you know one point and uh, yeah. Were your parents cool with the idea of you um, 
you know, not going to college at that point. Yeah, they were they were really supportive always. And in, in, in our band, Landslide used to practice in our house too. And we used to unload the gear at, you know, midnight, one o'clock in the morning. Yeah. They were pretty uh, tolerant of all of it. And if not, and very supportive. I think they told me later, much later that they were, they did have some concerns about me just going out and playing music, but mm. they but they never let on yeah. to me. So that was really cool. So you mentioned country music being sort of a big influence at that time. Mm-hmm. You're holding your guitar right now. Mm-hmm. I wonder if there's anything you could play to demonstrate sort of uh, a sound, or was there a particular guitarist you were listening to at that time who really had a big impact <clears throat> on you that you could kind like, of... Yeah, like in the seventies, or I think the seventies. Um, my brothers were into like I heard some Doc Watson stuff, so like mm-hmm. bluegrass flat picking. I got into that a little bit, and especially through them. And uh, and and we had a great Merle Haggard record that I loved. But it, even at that point, for me, in the I think in the it's funny in the early eighties, I think I got more into the the country electric playing more mm-hmm. in earnest. Um, or I guess yeah, it's right around around the late seventies, early eighties. And in the country world, I guess like Albert Lee was was really big then. Mm-hmm. I thought you know, and and I or at least that was a big influence. Um, obviously, like the stuff I heard on the records, like James Burton and Don Rich with Buck Owens and Roy Nichols with Merle Haggard. But almost there it was. I love. I have an appreciation of that more now because it's very minimal. I mean, they just played like couple little solos in the songs that never was about the big guitar solo yeah you know the beautiful country stuff that i love and uh but like in the right around then like that time for me at least discovering like with albert lee all of a sudden it was like oh this is like an amazing guitar solo in the song it was one um it was a dave edmonds record Uh and uh albert lee that was one of the big solos for me. It was called Sweet Little Lisa. Mm-hmm. And, in, and he had a he had a B bender, which I think I might have known about, which is that the contraption that that raises the B string. Okay. So it's 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 uh Clarence White invented it. Mm-hmm. And it's attached to the strap so you can push down and it, it'll it's like almost like a little bit of a pedal steel thing. It raises okay. it raise the raise the note like I'm doing that manually with just my fingers, but um, that's the sound, basically. Um, Let me just set this so I can... But Albert Lee, he did a lot of bending, and uh, he kind of... I don't know if I remember the solo exactly, but it had kind of... aren't yeah. verbatim licks yeah. but that's kind of like a lot of the sound and uh and then he also had a really amazing uh when he wasn't bending he had a really unique way of just kind of uh, getting from one place to another with a lot of like uh passing notes and chromatic stuff which kind of i guess if i can uh, That's that's a uh, that's a gross approximation of what, <laughs> what he does, 
there was a tune called Luxury Liner, Emmylou Harris, that he played on. That was another big one around that time for me where he played a lot of that kind of amazing stuff. And there's a video on YouTube of Emmylou from the 70s with Albert Lee and uh, everyone in the band. It's like Rodney Crowell's playing acoustic guitar and um, Hank DeVito, I think, was her steel player. But mm-hmm. it's a real showcase for Albert, and it's an amazing live thing. So if, cool. if anyone wants to check that out. I'll include a link to that one, too. Yeah. Uh, that was great. Thanks thanks for demonstrating yeah. that. Um, so so country was a big part of it. And it's it's amazing how you get a sound from playing without a, without a slide that almost sounds at times like you're playing a slide. And was that an Albert Lee thing, or was that yeah, a lot I mean, of people? I think there was a, you know... I think Clarence White really started that the bending thing with yeah. with the bender and uh and he's one of my favorites and he had a very sublime I think kind of style and it just basically he was in an attempt to trying to sound like a pedal steel yeah. so that was part of it was the bending So I kind of got into that I think it was around the 80s you know like mm-hmm. and, and got really more in earnest onto that kind of guitar playing and, and I had a I actually had a country band in the eighties for a few years, uh, started out doing a lot of the honky tonk stuff and kind of morphed into something else in, it's like the eighties. I think it's, it's a different experience for different people. Yeah. I think the eighties, you know, you think of like the machines started to come in the music, which was cool. I liked yeah. a lot of that stuff yeah. and synths and like electronic drums and drum machine. It was kind of like the sound, but also there was like a lot of roots music that was, mm-hmm. that I got turned on to then. Yeah, what were some of the bands you were listening to? Um, like, well, there was the Blasters, mm-hmm. um, Los Lobos, right. Del Fuegos. Mm-hmm. There was these bands were like on major labels. Yeah, was that when Lone Justice? Lone Justice, yeah, yeah they were a little more rocking. But yeah, there was a there was kind of a big movement. And then here, Jimmy Ryan's band, mm-hmm. Blood Oranges, I got turned on to later because I didn't know him then. But um, and there was a lot of that. You yeah, know? and also there was that we we really liked this Elvis Costello record. Which one? Almost Blue. He made a country oh, yeah. record. I don't know if you remember. Yeah. And actually, you know, it's like a lot of things. I got turned on to some of those tunes from that record. Yeah, he did some like Charlie Rich tunes and did some George Jones tunes on it. It's it's kind of a cool record. Yeah. That was early 80s, I think. Yeah, that is definitely an underappreciated uh, mm. Elvis Costello record. It's cool. Uh, so what about other guitarists who are kind of coming into your view at that point, either from the rock world or, uh, you know, any other sphere? Well, in the, in the 70s, like, when I really got, I got going, like, in my teens, like, it was like, it was the Dead, mm-hmm. the Allman Brothers, like, because they were such, they were so guitar-oriented and yeah. just great, you know? Yeah. And I really, Dwayne Allman and Garcia, and then... A little later, and then after that, it was Little Feet, mm-hmm. and Lowell George, and Ry Cooter, which mm-hmm. when I finally found Ry Cooter, that was kind of like one of the epiphanies, because I just, I, I was really kind of got into him. And that was probably, yeah, right at the end of the 70s, early 80s. So was there anything uh, that he did in particular that you transcribed and really figured out? Yeah, a little bit. You know, he plays mostly in open tunings on electric, mm-hmm. especially, mm-hmm. which I think is one of his... And he plays in a certain way that I think that's really unique. And uh, so I got into that kind of open tuning and maybe there's a maybe there's a way I can kind of uh, convey this without going into the whole open tuning trip. And, okay. Because you get closer to the way the way that he would sound if possible. Um, but but he had just a way of, of playing voicings and he was amazing. Obviously the slide thing is such a huge part of his thing, but I really love just the kind of voicings he used when he played electric guitar. 
that's kind of like his uh, his take on the gospel kind of R&B guitar playing that, again, like a lot of people get turned on to like Muddy Waters because Eric Clapton played the music. Right. And uh, with Rye, when I heard him, I had never, I found out later as I got into like a lot of the, the R&B guitar players or got into them more, like I could hear where he he came from more. You know, mm-hmm. it didn't come, like like every great player, it doesn't come from thin air. Yeah. But I still think he had his his re- a really unique take on on that kind of stuff. Basically, I feel like he uh, um, comes from Pop Staples and yeah. uh, and Bobby Womack mm-hmm. uh, for for two examples. And I, um, but just you know, he, he kind of took that and and really developed something cool with it. And not and they were of course amazing. You mentioned um, Bobby Womack. I believe yeah. you do some Bobby Womack with your band, The Giant. That's Kings, all right? we do is Bobby. That's Womack. all you yeah. do is it's <laughs> nothing else. It's a Bobby um, Womack cover yeah, band. Yeah, like Paul Allstrand, who's the tenor player. Yeah, says you know when when people sometimes come up and ask if we have a record, and you know we, we're basically we, we play covers, and and he and Paul said, yeah, we have a record. It's called Bobby Womack's Greatest Hits. <laughs> but yeah, we I love him. What about his sound or, or any sort of, uh, are there yeah, any other guitarists who he, sold, you know, R&B sound? I love his bit. guitar playing. He's, yeah. and I think he plays lefty and upside down. Oh, wow. Like Dennis Brennan. Yeah. Yeah. So he has like, there's a certain, couple things he does. I think that, that I think kind of to try to approximate it, I have to kind of like <laughs> play like upstrokes cause to uh, kind of compensate for the, uh, the lack this being the other way around but uh Yeah, and that's that's just a kind of impression of right. Bobby Womack, yeah, you know. Yeah. But but that I think you know, in the best way for me, I think that's what I usually kind of go for, right. when, and especially as I, you know, when I was, I think when you're younger, you just you want to sound like your favorite guitar yeah. players, and that's and there's really a lot to be gained from trying to do that by learning about that. But also the the goal is to not sound like them ultimately. Right. So to me, it's like if I can get some kind of essence or like impression of what, what's great about the playing without aping it too much. Well, that's the thing, Duke, anyone who's familiar with your playing will recognize a Duke Levine guitar part immediately. Well, that's, that's impressive. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's well, uh, I'm, I'm glad. I mean, it's hard to, you know, cause I always think it's hard to know because you, any any musician you hear yourself all the time right so i'm i'm sick of what i do and <laughs> and i don't even yeah well it it's it's true and so like i'm putting you through this thing where you're playing samples from other people which is a little um counter productive to the idea that uh you are you have your own sound so um you know, I never listen to you play and go like, "Oh, he's just doing this or just doing oh, that." Oh, that's great! Well, I you hope know, so. It, it's a unique sound, and 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 you're probably aware, in fact, that there are a lot of guitarists in Boston and elsewhere who tried to who use you as an example. Wow, um, I don't know about that, but 
Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Um, I'm there, sorry. There, <laughs> uh, Tony Savarino, for example. Oh, Tony. I love Tony. Uh, he's a great guitar player he here is. in Boston. I haven't seen him in a while, but I, I took some lessons from him at oh, one cool. point. Yeah. Um, I, I'm more of a, of a strummer, really. Uh-huh. I have a telly, but I don't yeah. really do much with it. Um, and he actually talked about, I think he might have called it like his Duke Levine um, inversions exercise or something like uh, that, okay. um, where you where you'd play like sort of three note triads up and oh, down yeah. the neck yep. to, in all different formulations to get really amazing sounds. You yeah, know? oh cool. So it is happening that people are turning it around on you and right. analyzing your music and trying to use it to sort of move the music forward. That's that's, that's great. And and that bit, you know, what he showed me, it was simple in theory in that it was basically three note chords mm-hmm. that were being moved up around the neck in like major and minor. And I don't yeah. want to get too into the weeds for people yeah, who yeah. are guitar players, but but yet what you do with it, performing live or on record, does not seem simple and easy. It does seem tasteful, but also at times virtuosic too you don't always play really fast and speedy uh, or crunchy or whatever but but um so i think that that's a really interesting part of your style like the fact that it's it's first of all your tone is amazing and 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 there is this virtuosity but also this tasteful simplicity at the same time and i don't mean that no that's 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 what i like you know it's basically i i think i try to play what i want to listen to you know and and i have fun like if um i have fun like in the country world, there's a style going back to the at least the fifties of of like kind of flat picking on electric guitar or like you know like uh, Joe Mafis or Les Paul where it's like it's I find that really fun to kind of learn those tunes that are really fast picking yeah. challenges in that style. I mm-hmm. kind of like that. Other than that, I don't. I'm not that enamored of of tons of licks just for the sake of it. And, uh, and of I know what licks? Of tons of oh, licks. tons of licks. Tons okay. of licks. Yeah. And, it, and then there's nothing wrong with it. And some people love it. And yeah. I think it can be great. And I appreciate it whenever it happens with yeah. anybody in any style. It's amazing. But it's just not what I tend to listen to. Yeah. You know, if I put on a record, it's not what I'm, that's not what I sit down and want to hear. Right. Um, so, but even when you're playing those speedy runs, like I think of Nashville Skyline Rag, your yeah. cover of the Dylan tune. Yeah. I wonder if you could play a little bit of that oh, uh, yeah. as an example of, of a quick lick. I used to be able to play that. <laughs> um, um, so. Actually, you know what? Could I play a different example? Yeah, definitely. Um, like this one, I used to play with a guy named Roy Sludge a lot. Oh, yeah. And uh, we did a couple tunes uh that were instrumentals in that style I was talking about. Like, um, there's uh, there's one called Honey Fingers from uh, Leon Rhodes. kind of style which i kind of got into and and that I, I i have fun doing that kind of thing yeah um other than that just but you know i don't know if that i'd do a whole night of it but right <laughs> I, there's there's a few that i really i love about that that style from well the i mean that's the thing is like some of your uh tunes and i think particularly i'm thinking of the last two duke levine solo albums have a lot of these beautiful uh ballads and yeah, there's none of that yeah yeah that was kind of purposeful i guess just to 
just to not have that on, on a guitar record. And actually, I think of country soul guitar too, mm-hmm. which uh, somebody uh, I don't somebody put out. Uh, I guess with your cooperation, a, a set of transcriptions oh, yeah. of everything that's on that album. Yeah, and Mel Bay. Exactly, Mel Great Bay. Great honor. Yeah, uh, definitely, amazing. and and uh, you know, like I I remember st- struggling through trying to play uh, Waltz of the Titans, oh, yeah. and some of the other tunes on that, and well, and I think of Waltz of the Titans in particular as one of these tunes that has that more um, sort of ballad type mm-hmm. sound. Maybe ballad isn't the right word, yeah. but has a soulful sound. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really pretty. Oh, thanks. Um, maybe we'll listen to a, a little bit of that. Well, well, or maybe you could play sure. a little bit of that. What is that? And and so how did that come together? Uh, that the the melody, the baseline. You know, I it's. Mean, fun. I think I'm, I think I've kind of forgot about this, but uh, I think I wrote that. I was pl- I played with a band called the Del Fuegos for a couple of years. Yeah, big band out of Dan, Boston. Dan had, Zanes, yep. who a lot of people know from his recent records that, in the kids' world, yeah. and he's great. He had the, the actually it was the Del Fuegos had broken up, and Dan got the a band back together after after sitting around for about a year. Yeah. And uh, lucky enough, I was able to do that with him. We played a bunch of Del Fuego stuff and a bunch of his new stuff. And uh, anyway, I think he, I think he said, you know, you should, we need a, you should write a waltz. And I, I'm trying to remember, we did some acoustic shows and I'm, maybe it was for that. Um, and I think that's kind of how I got going on writing a waltz. Yeah. Wow. It's a, it's a great tune. That's on country soul guitar from Duke Levine. Um, the Beatles must have been a huge influence to mm-hmm. you throughout your life. I mean, because not only flying is a tune that you've done, yeah. but the sweet sound, uh, super sweet sounds of the seventies, uh, perform live. All things must pass. Yeah. Is that one of the tunes on the EP or no? Um, it's not so yeah. far, but, but I would consider it. It's one of, yeah, I really like that one. It's a beautiful, beautiful version. Yeah. And then you did Anna, um, which is right. a song they didn't write. I don't think but, Arthur Alexander, which yeah. was our second, the other is another Arthur Alexander song on uh, Country Soul called Mr. John. Yeah. And one of his more obscure ones. But uh Yeah. And there but there's like a vocal quality to the way you play on that and other tunes like Waltz of the Titans. Mm-hmm. Is that something where vocalists have had an influence on you too? Yeah. I mean obviously I listen to most of what I listen to is sung music. But yeah. um you know, and I I try to make it whenever I play a tune that's a vocal tune, I just is a line between trying to make it literally sound like the vocal phrasing but also make it sound like it's a guitar song yeah kind of somewhere in between what basically if it feels right to me and that can kind of make it guitar-esque um that's kind of what i would go for and i guess maybe it's just a natural try to play with that kind of quality anyways yeah yeah well it definitely comes through um earlier you had talked about the fact that some musicians who who sort of at some point see themselves on a side musician track 
might feel frustrated. They would rather be the center of attention. Um, I teach students uh, at Berkeley, and sometimes um, they I hear them looking for that that balance. Yeah. And I wonder what advice you would have for somebody who's in that position where they're writing tunes and they want to be a leader, but those it's hard to start to build that into something big. Right. How do they kind of take those first few steps? Um, you mean to being a sideman or to being their own? Thing, um, well, well, maybe both. Yeah, maybe I both. think I think that would be the answer, which was for me, which was to do both. You know, and yeah. especially if you know. But I, I feel like whatever you do, you should really want to do it. If you're going to be a side man, you should like you should really appreciate it and, yeah. and love it. Because, but not you know, like I say, not everybody does. Some people really do. But I think having your own outlet is really is great for that too. Yeah. And it's fun. I think it's one of the reasons I wanted to do my own record. And because, you know, I was starting to do a fair amount of session work and playing with other people and, and especially in the studio, you know, you do whatever everybody wants to do and mm-hmm. it might not be the direction you think it should go or not, but yeah. you do, you know, you go with it. And yeah. I, f- I thought, it's like, oh, I really want to do something where I, don't, I can just be the one to say whatever happens, you know, yeah. and, and just control control your own musical environment and i think that's a really good outlet to have if you're doing the sideman thing as well because it i think it helps you know you have your own outlet to to make some music and make a statement and you can also play with other people and it it won't it won't threaten like you have to choose between one or the other you waited for a while though right i mean how far into your career were you um i did i did a record really early on that that i don't have any that was like a fusion record called guitar talk and uh, that was actually the first record I did, and it came about. I actually won a contest mm. from Musician Magazine. Oh no, kidding! Which <laughs> that's its own story. It was it was to promote John Schofield's record called Loud Jazz. Yeah, and uh, and they said send us your send a submission, and a winner will get um, all expense paid trip to New York to record at Grammy Vision Studios for two days with John Schofield producing. That was yeah. the prize. So it was oh, like, wow. and, and a guitar. And so long, long story short, I think I had forgotten about it. I think it was a year later, maybe, or something. And I got a call that I had won and John picked the, the winner. And uh, he said, but, you know, John's not on the label anymore, but he will still come in and, and produce. And, but the guy at the label won't pay to go for you guys to go down, but I'll give you the studio time still and the guitar. Yeah. So it was like, <laughs> I think I bargained for like an extra day in the studio oh, and took my band down there and we actually got, you know, we recorded a record Yeah. and I, and I ended up mixing it. It took, took a while, but, and, and John came in and he couldn't have been nicer. So a couple more quick ones and then I'll, and then I'll yeah. uh, wrap this up. But I want to make sure I ask, um, because it would feel like a, I, I skipped it, but playing with Peter Wolf yeah. uh, has been, I think, it, from my perspective, a major part of, of your life. Peter yeah, Wolf, totally. uh, the lead singer of Jay Giles, mm-hmm. and such an important figure in Boston rock history, going mm-hmm. way back to the 60s when he had the hallucinations, mm-hmm. and he and Van Morrison hung out in 68 and all that stuff. So um, I guess I'm wondering how, um, how what that was like first collaborating with him, which you continue to do, and mm-hmm. what sort of what what it's like to work with him as a uh, It's it's one of the one of the great joys of my life. Really, it, it's like he's he's an amazing artist, and uh, 
I think a lot of people don't know about him. They had such an interesting history with the Jay Giles band. A lot of people remember the Jay Giles band either right. from the seventies or their big hits in the eighties. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't Jay Giles, so yeah. some people think he's Jay Giles. And when they hear the name Peter Wolf, they're like, "Oh, who's that?" And yeah, Jay Giles was the guitar player in that. Yeah, Jay, Jay was the guitar player, and um, so but he, but Pete's been making records, you know, since a little while after that band. Well, actually, pretty soon after the band broke up, he he made his first solo record. But I got involved with him through a mutual friend. I I know Pete a little bit from around town. And this was probably like maybe the mid-90s or mm-hmm. late 90s. And around the time he was making a record called Fool's Parade. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you know Kenny White, who's a great friend of ours, an amazing yeah. musician, singer-songwriter, um, was producing the record. And I had just met Kenny. We had mutual friends forever and uh, finally had met him just before he got into working with Pete. And he suggested that I come along for that. Mm-hmm. And that was the beginning of that story. And just, you know, and it, it, we didn't, I don't think Pete didn't tour after that record, but the next one called Sleepless, he did. And then right. that's when the band got together. And that was like early 2000s, I guess, and been playing with him ever since and really have a close working relationship. And yeah, he's, I love, I love his singing. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes it gets overshadowed because he's an amazing front man. And that just, that alone will like entertain anybody. Yeah. And I think sometimes people don't, don't even realize how great a singer he is, but I think he's one of the iconic rock and roll singers and a true love for all kinds of music, yeah. especially obviously R&B, but real deep love of country music. And when he sings a country song, he sings it like him. But yeah. And uh, yeah, I just, yeah, it's been really, and I get to, I get to play guitar <laughs> the way I love to play guitar. Yeah. And that's, and that's really, uh, really something. Yeah, I agree with everything you just said about him as a vocalist, mm-hmm. as a musician, as an influence, and and that uh, record Sleepless is really. I mean, I like yeah. all of his all of his records are great. Sleepless is not not only Duke Levine is on it, but Keith and Mick are on it, and Larry Campbell, uh, Steve Earle maybe is on that one. Or am I Steve, confusing that with Steve another record? Steve does a tune on that. Yeah, yeah, he sings a duet, and amazing musicians: Larry Campbell, yeah. Sean Pelton, Tony Garnier, um, Kenny White. Um, yeah, that was that was a really fun one to make. Yeah, it's. I think it's on the top 500 uh, albums of all was, time by yeah, Rolling Stone. Something like and, that, yeah. And it is a great album, and all of his solo stuff is great. Uh, so, And he goes to a lot of your shows. You see him sitting there, and he's, he's he jumped up to, and sang with you a few he times. He has, and he goes, to every, he goes to a lot of shows. He loves yeah. music, you know, and he'll, you know, yeah, he's, he's out a lot. So I want to ask you a question that I know a lot of people wonder about with regard to you and your music and your life and the choices you've made. You're here. In oh, the- no. <laughs> uh, yes. Yes, dude. Choices. It's, it's, it's choices yeah. and uh, yeah. getting into the personal stuff. But uh, it, it's you can obviously uh, – you could have gone to Nashville. You could have gone to L.A. Mm-hmm. or New York. Um, you did move from Worcester to Boston at mm-hmm. some point. Um, but um, – you know, and had like a very lucrative, not to you know, I don't, you, you know, you, you could have been on who knows what sort of projects and mm-hmm. records and tours and things like that. Um, and I know you were probably tempted at some point yeah. um, and asked, but so what led to your deciding to run your career the way that you do from the Boston area and, and you know, and, and have what seems like a pretty damn good life, by the way, but yeah. um, was, you know, yeah, how did it that was, come about? it was kind of, you're right. And I, I had thought about, you know, here and there about moving to one of those places along the way. And what I think what happened for me right around and when I started playing, I got a, I got a, what was a really big gig and still is um, in 95 with Mary Chapin Carpenter, who I played with for 
know, seven or eight years on the road and still work with her sometimes now yeah. and play on her records. On her latest record. Too. Yeah. Yep. Um, and that was a lot. That was, you know, she was, you know, that particular year at the height of her career headlining, you know, big places. And that was like the, f and I hadn't been on a tour like that ever, you know, yeah. still, um, that was like that first year was nine months on the road. Um, wow. and the subsequent years were pretty big chunks, you know, five, six months. Wow. That was a, that was a really big gig and a great gig. And, uh, she's an amazing artist. And I, and then that lasted, I guess, yeah, it's still 2001, maybe 2002. And at that time I didn't feel like I needed to, to relocate because I was on the road all the time. Yeah. It didn't really matter that I was here in Boston. So there was a chunk of time for that. And, uh, and would also occasionally do a session for a record in New York or Nashville along the way. And then when I decided to get off the road um, and stop doing that particular gig, a lot of it was just, I wanted to just kind of take a break from the travel. Right. Uh, around the same time, I kind of started to get a little bit more session work in New York. Um, you know, it wasn't all the time, but you know, once a month, you know, or, you know, I'd have a few days to go down and, and I was getting calls from, from people down there and at that point I was you know it's a trek and you know possibly if I lived there I would be I would have gotten more but I felt like all right I'm, I'm kind of working I'm not just working in Boston get an occasional gig in Nashville too and uh I didn't feel a pressing need to and I like it here you know I like yeah. Boston I love the music scene here and I, that's kind of how it went for a while you know I was kind of doing you know doing some work here and there in some of the other towns but uh and now at this point you know, if I've ever thought about it in the past 10 years, um, the music business obviously has changed so much. And the people I know in those places, you know, I, in a way were hit the hardest because they were doing the most work. Right. You know, there's so much, and there's still obviously way more work in Nashville probably at this point than anywhere else. But um, I, at this point it feels like, well, to move there, to move to any of those places, it's not necessarily a better scene at, at this point, you know, and there's, there's not the work that there once was. Yeah. Um, and, and I just, again, yeah, I really, I love, I love the music scene here. There's, yeah, there's so many great players and artists too. Mm -hmm. And people come out to hear them. It's like, yeah. I think it's unusual. Yeah, it's true. I mean, uh, even though a lot of clubs have closed over the last few years, a few new ones have opened up, but, um, you know, bands like yours and Dennis Brennan and Tim Guerin and Peter Wolf are, mm -hmm. are out there and, and a lot of great bands and singer songwriters and musicians. And yeah. I think we are lucky in a lot of ways in Boston. Yeah. And, and, uh, I know people that come here from other major cities and they're like, wow, this, this doesn't happen where I am, you know, and we can't go out on a Wednesday and hear an amazing original artist, you know? One, week. Well, one guy you mentioned uh, when, when you were at WUMB a few months ago, uh, it was in September, I think, um, you list you did this interview guest mix thing where yeah. you uh, mentioned a, f a bunch of favorite artists and songs, and one of them was William Topley. Is that his name? Oh, William Topley, yeah. And I'd never heard of him. Yeah. And he's got this amazing deep voice yeah. and great songs, and uh, he moved from where to Boston? He was, I don't know exactly where he was last, but he's originally from the UK. Okay. So, um, but he's in our in our environment, and yeah. uh, actually just uh, emailed with him the other day, encouraging him to to come to some of these places and do yeah. a gig. So yeah. I want to hear him. Yeah, live. Well, yeah. I'll let him know. Good. Yeah. Uh, so well, we're we're blessed to have you on the scene. Uh, well, thank you so and much. So uh, when's the new record gonna come out? That I don't know. It's it's like like I say, it's a work in progress, yeah. and and a, a lot of it for uh, you. 
we'll probably see another video and uh, representation of one of the tunes before the record. Yeah. And that's kind of great. Uh, you know, it, for what this band is, at, at, I feel like that's kind of a, a good outlet for people to check it out. Yeah. And then, you know, at some point release, you know, maybe like a little EP. Cool. Well, yeah. looking forward to that. Thank you so much for thanks, the chat Rob. today. Absolutely. Thanks for the, playing the guitar. Yeah. And uh, and thanks for the music all these years. You know, you. your music is really meaningful to me, to a lot of people. Um, and it's... it's you, there is a generosity in the in in the way that you play and mm. and 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 the way you interact and collaborate with Kevin and other musicians you play with and there's mm. just there's a beautiful spirit that comes along with the music so uh, it, it it's huge and so thank you for all of that. Well, thank you. Really appreciate it. Learn more at DukeLevine.com. All of his upcoming shows are there. As great as he sounds on record and alone down in his basement, you have to hear Duke Levine live in any kind of band setting to really appreciate his artistry. As we take this one out, we are hearing Neptune from Duke Levine's most recent release, The Fade Out. This episode was edited and mixed by Isaac Kotecki. Matt Jensen composed and recorded the theme music. Subscribe to the Media Narrative podcast and newsletter at themedianarrative.com. I'm Rob Hoschel. Thanks for listening.